Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I know a lot about it being baseball season already again, and I'm coaching two teams somehow in the same time when we have our omnibus proposal due, and also these other proposals, plus it's the beginning of the semester, and I've got other things to do also, but I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes, and that's the purpose of this here show. Today, I am on a roll. It's time to go solo, and so I'm doing that. Uh... Carolyn is out on assignment. Everybody's on assignment today. They're all on assignment. So it's just me. They've left me holding the bag, holding the keys, holding something, holding the secret to your future, maybe. But regardless, it's just me. And uh, not a lot of announcements up top. A um, couple of them that we want to make. One is don't forget we have a newsletter. And I remember to release issues of the newsletter uh, periodically. Right now, the newsletter is hosted at Substack. So you can go to teach me about the Great Lakes substack.com however we're uh, evaluating all sorts of places to potentially host that so you could also just go to teach me about the great slash newsletter and that'll give you uh, the sign up link um, and the link to it wherever it is if we don't stay on substack but so far substack's been working pretty well and uh, one of my best buddies growing up there is a product designer over at substack and so uh, that's where we are anyway you should sign up for that we will also be at the uh, live, another live show. This is the year of live Teach Me About the Great Lakes at the Great Lakes Sea Grant Network meeting. If you're going to be at the Great Lakes Sea Grant Network meeting, which chances are you won't because it's only for Sea <laughs> Grant employees. But if you're listening and you are, we'll be uh, live, I think on September 19th. Is that the Tuesday? I think that's the Tuesday. So come check us out. We do not yet have a location, but we will have a location soon. So come check us out there. Uh, anyway, with that, so this one's fun. Um, this interview, we got an email from a PR person saying, we've got a paper coming out, but it's under embargo. And uh, our good friend Sandra Svoboda recommended that we appear on this show. And I said, well, if Sandy says, come on, then uh, we should have you on. So anyway, this is a paper that is out now, but, but it was under embargo, just like real members of the press. We had to wait to release it. But we're excited to bring it to you now. And so it's an interview. We're going to interview this um woman named Eden Hatley, who is a PhD student at the University of Toronto, and they've done some really neat work summarizing microplastics in the region and making some policy recommendations. So let's just jump right there and talk about it. But first, I think we all know what uh, Eden is by trade, so it's time for that theme song. Researcher feature. A feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. Our guest today is Eden Hatley, and she is a, a doctoral student in the Rockman Lab at the University of Toronto in the T.O. home of the Iagler Conference, and teach me about the Great Lakes live, which Eden was not at, but I was. Eden, how are you today? Good, good. Thank you for having me. And you're an author of a paper. It's actually one of two papers um, released all at once. I'm always curious how this goes, so maybe we'll talk a little bit behind the scenes. But the paper is called Towards a Management Strategy for Microplastic Pollution in the Laurentian Great Lakes. Uh, and this is Ecological Risk Assessment and Management, Part 2. And that is out now, right now. You can go check it out uh, at the Canadian Journal of Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences, which is a very nice journal. 
I cited a lot back when I was in graduate school as a fishery student. Less so now, but that's okay. Uh, Eden, thanks so much for coming on. So let's talk about this paper. First, let's get on the same page. We Microplastics is kind of a big... We've spent a lot of time um, on microplastics from like the very first episode. Teach me about the Great Lakes episode one, three, three years ago, four. Oh my goodness, it was almost four years ago. Anyway, episode one and um, all the way through, you know, right now, I suppose. So microplastics is in many ways the story spanning the podcast. So we're all on the same page. And for brand new listeners, what, what is a microplastic exactly? How would you define one as opposed to a macroplastic, I guess? And, and, and where do they come from? So I think at its most basic, microplastics are a particle of plastic less than five millimeters in size. So made of plastic and small, which differentiates from a macroplastic, which is a piece of plastic larger than five millimeters in size. But in reality, they're, they are much more complex than that. Like size and plastic are just two parts of the equation. In our lab, we like to refer to them as a complex suite of contaminants. So really, no one microplastic is like another when they're found in the environment. They are so drastically different. And this is physically and chemically. So physically, as I said, they can be different sizes, but they also can be different shapes. And the shape might determine where it came from. So the source of the microplastic, but they also can be diverse chemically. So they are made up of different polymer backbones. They have different chemical additives that are added to plastic products to give them different functions or characteristics. And they can accumulate different chemical contaminants once they're already in the environment. So really, microplastics, diverse, complex, chemically, and physically. Interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. But of course, there are zillions of types of plastics, right? And all of these break down. And it's everything, like the classic former example was always the microbeads in like the, or, you know, when I was doing like my, my uh, T-zone or whatever, right? And, and uh, less so now, because I think, I don't know if those are illegal, but they're certainly kind of out of the, the picture. But, but that's just one of, uh, I mean, almost unlimited number of plastics. And, and they can come in kind of unlimited ways. And so when I first heard about microplastics, so this is, this is when I first heard about them, um, the idea was we know these are there. We know they're kind of everywhere, but we aren't sure about the effects. But that was four or five years ago. What, what is the state of the science now? What do we know about the effects of microplastics in the environment or in the Great Lakes, I guess, more specifically, if you can get that specific? Yeah, before I jump into that, I want to jump back to you talking about all the different sources that microplastics come from. You mentioned microbeads, which is a great um, example of what we call a primary microplastic. So a primary microplastic is something that's made to be that small. So microbeads that you find, yes, in your face wash, tooth, toothpaste, those are now banned in Canada and the US, but you still find them in cleaning products. Um, primary microplastic example also includes different abrasives used in industrial pro uh, processes. And then we have secondary microplastics. So they come from the wear and tear of larger plastic items. Um, so things like when you get a bottle or a bag that breaks down in fragments in the environment. So those are another two ways we classify microplastics, primary and secondary. All right. Now we got to hold on. I, now you're going to try to answer all my questions because you're a pro, but I got to go back. They had them in toothpaste. Are you kidding me? People are brushing their teeth with little plastic whatevers. Yeah. Brushing your teeth, washing your face, washing your body. Yeah. I, I don't know about shampoo and conditioner maybe, but yeah, a lot of different products had these little tiny, tiny microbeads used as abrasives. Um, and they're still found in cleaning products. So 
yes, but that is a thing of the past now. Not No longer are the goods we use in the washroom, thankfully. Yeah, excellent. So then you were, before I interrupted you to talk about something stupid, you were going to try to give me a very big picture update of what we know in terms of are these, you know, are they just unnatural or are they also harmful? It's like, a, you know, something might be unnatural. Well, it depends on your definition of natural. That can get complicated since humans are a part of nature, I suppose. But uh, are they just something new that's out there, novel? Uh, or is there actual harm that, that comes from them? Yeah, so there have been lab studies that show harm with different types of species tested in the lab. So things that studies show, it's a variety of biological effects, like changes in gene expression, changes in reproduction, decreases in growth, um, inflammation, reduced filtration and respiration, decreased survival. So a whole whack of things seen in lab studies that show that microplastics can cause harm. Um, I think one of the reasons why we see such a, a, a a whole suite of different effects is because like we talked about at the beginning, every microplastic is so different from the next. So you really have, as I said, a suite of contaminants, not just one contaminant that can cause harm in many different ways. Um, In terms of humans, what do we know? We don't really know. I think we know that we're being exposed to microplastics often through inhalation. So yes, there are microplastics in the air as well as our diet, drinking water, you know, fish that come from the environment. There's one study that looks at beer that was brewed with water sourced from the Great Lakes that found microplastics. So we know we're consuming them. We don't know what that means. So there's not enough research to really say at this point for humans. Uh, We're going to have to reach out to Mike Williams, our contact at Great Lakes Brewing, who we sat down for to interview, oh gosh, last year. You'll just have to go find it. Teach me about thegreatlakes.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, very sad because I know their water. I'm pretty sure their water comes from the lake. Um, but hopefully they are able to, mic- can you microplastic, can you filter out the microplastics? Do you know, is that a thing? Yeah, I know. I think there's a lot of research actually, like for drinking water and treatment plants and what can be done to reduce microplastics and drinking water for sure. And yeah, the story you're telling me just reminds me a lot of PFAS too, right? Where it's like, it's this whole suite of things and, and we know it's bad. We don't know how bad, but same deal. Yes. That's a good comparison. Yeah. All right, so let's, this brings us to your paper that you wrote. And this is one of two papers, and so y'all published, uh, this is all from the Rockman Lab, a couple of different um, people take the lead on different parts of this. So big picture, what are these papers trying to do, and what are they trying to say? Yeah, so I guess the origin stories of the two papers, two things kind of happened about at the same time that kind of brought about these two papers. So the first was um, Environment and Climate Change Canada, so our, our federal environment ministry here in Canada, contracted um, members of the Rockman Lab to write a report on microplastics in the Great Lakes, specifically on um, what concentrations were seen, how people are measuring them, and then to think about if we were to include microplastics in the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, and I can define the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement in a second, what exactly would that look like? How could we include this contaminant in the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement? Um, so for listeners who might not know what the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement is, it's a longstanding agreement between the U.S. and Canada that outlines binational priorities um, and actions to resolve any transboundary environmental problems in the Great Lakes. So environmental problems that both Canada and the U.S. are dealing with. So 
And that happened here at home. So we started, we wrote this report and we were starting to think about, okay, how could microplastics be man, better managed on a binational scale in the Great Lakes? So how could the two countries work coordinate? How could they coordinate and work together? The second thing that was happening is down in California, um, there were some policy changes by the state government that mandated it manage microplastic pollution in its coastal environments better. So these policy changes brought about a whole bunch of things, but two of the things that it brought about were two expert work groups, one that was looking at ecological health and one that was looking at human health. And the goal of these two work groups was to create risk assessment frameworks, so to develop these thresholds of concern um, tied to management actions for microplastics um, in the aquatic environment and then for, micro, for humans being exposed to microplastics through drinking water. So long story short, the drinking water and human exposure group deemed there was not enough information to do this, which we already touched upon earlier. So they weren't able to develop thresholds, but the ecological health group was. So they are the ones who built this risk assessment framework that we then brought up to the Great Lakes and applied to data here at home on concentrations of microplastics in the Great Lakes. So a bunch of experts got together in California and created a risk assessment framework, which I don't know, is that like a way of... Um... Is that like a set of criteria that you might use to evaluate different risks? Is that how you would describe what a framework might be? So I think generally um, an ecological risk assessment framework. So as I said, you can do them for human health. You can do, do them for ecological health um, is the process for evaluating how likely it is that the environment might be impacted as a result of exposure to one or more environmental stressors. So that could be a chemical like microplastics or like PFAS, like we talked about, can also be something like land use change or invasive species. It can be many different things. So it's just a process of trying to figure out how, if and how much risk the environment is currently experiencing as a result of some stressor. But the process is key there, right? It's that you're, you're having this way of doing it. So it's not just a bunch of people sitting around and deciding. They have criteria or things like that. It's, is that... Yeah, it's, it's systematic. and in, Try to formalize it a little bit. Yeah, and in terms of the one we used, it's actually quantitative. So it's not just a qualitative risk assessment, which exists as well, but it's quantitative, right? There are thresholds developed that show numbers, concentrations at which you might expect to see harm. So it's very much based in in research and is built from laboratory studies that are testing the effects of microplastics. And so based on those studies, they said this level, uh, this threshold um, is potential harm. And so if we find something that exceeds, meets or exceeds this threshold, it might be one level. If it meets or exceeds another threshold, it might be a higher level of risk. Is that? Exactly. So the one that was built in California by this expert working group, they came up with five management tiers um, that range from a low to a high regulatory concern and four risk thresholds. Um, so that also range from uh, a low risk to a high risk. And the concentration of microplastics, microplastics increases as you move up. So they had tiers and thresholds on an increasing scale. And so, so you take this set of criteria developed by California experts, um, or actually it was global, global experts. Global experts in California. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, maybe yeah. they were virtual. I don't even know. It could have been virtual, but... Probably, probably at least partially virtual. Yeah, brought on by the California government. Yes, yes. Okay, and, and so you took this set of criteria and you said, we're going to apply this to microplastics in the Great Lakes. And you couldn't do it for human health because they just didn't have the studies. Like you're saying, trying to make this as objective as possible, which means you need the lab data. And if you don't have the lab data, then you, you know, keep, get the lab data, then we'll revisit this. As always, the actual lesson of teaching about the Great Lakes is keep funding people to do work. 
keep funding. <laughs> anyway, and so you decided to bring this to the Great Lakes and you wanted to apply that framework to the environment in the Great Lakes. Well, one obvious way to do that is to go collect a whole bunch of data. Um, but that strikes me as pricey. Is that and so y'all? I think yeah, you took a different tack. Is that right? How did you how did you find the data? Yes, we did not go out and sample all around the Great Lakes, which I would have loved. I would love to be on a boat for months, boating around the Great Lakes. That'd be very cool. Um, but what we did is we got all of our data from ex existing data sets, data sets from studies published in the peer-reviewed literature. So the first study that looked at microplastics in the Great Lakes was published, I believe, in 2011. So there's just over a decade's worth of data out there now. Um, and so we looked um, to see if people had published their data sets with their studies that, and we could get that available online. We contacted some researchers and asked for their raw data. And then we compiled a whole bunch of raw, raw data that has been collected by different research groups, um, some based in at universities, some nonprofit organizations. And that was the data we used to do this risk assessment. I be believe we had data for microplastics in water from all five Great Lakes. At the time, there was no data published for microplastics and sediment for Lake Superior, but there was for the other four Great Lakes. Now, I believe, though, there has been a study that looks at microplastics in sediments for Lake Superior. So there was a decent coverage of the region available in the peer-reviewed literature. I see. And is there a concern? So I'm working on what uh, meta-analysis right now and um, in social sciences. And for listeners who don't know what that is, essentially what a meta-analysis is, is you take a bunch of papers and you analyze them. You take the data and you, you do an analysis on that to try to draw broader conclusions. Because any one study, there may be a bunch of reasons why it's kind of idiosyncratic or unusual. But if you get a bunch of studies together, then you can try to really get at some, some broader truth. And so a big problem with meta-analyses is, is what they call the file drawer problem which is stuff that tends to get published in papers tends to be things with positive results. Things that don't have positive results tend to not get. And so then, or that there just might be missing data and that the missing data might make a difference. Do you know? And so you got data from published papers. Did you look for other sources or was that just not feasible here? No, this was really the only source, like what was available in the peer reviewed literature, which is actually a big takeaway from our papers. One of the main suggestions we have in both of our papers is that we need a coordinated man management, or sorry, a coordinated monitoring program um, that samples for microplastics across different environmental matrices. So in sediment and in water across the Great Lakes run by both the Canadian and American governments. And this is so that we really get a data set that is in sync with each other, right? So that all the different samples are collected using the same methods. The same methods are used in the lab to analyze the samples. Of course, that's an issue with our, the data set we, we used. Different researchers use different methods, and that can make a difference. So a big example for microplastics is I said initially, there's a, a size fraction that are, of plastic particles that are considered within the microplastic size range. So this is often from the one micron to um, 5,000 micron size range. Not all researchers go down to the same level. They often all have the same high level, five microns or 5,000 microns, but people go down to 500 microns, 300 microns, 150 microns. And the problem is we know that these smaller microplastics are, are present in the environment at much higher concentrations. So the people that go down further have higher concentrations compared to the people that don't. And you get these data sets that aren't directly comparable. Um, so in our papers, we did apply a correction factor to make it so the concentrations that are representative are for the entire microplastic size range, 
But this is just one example of differences you might get with different research groups. There are many. Um, so what we really need to have a good understanding of risks uh, and exposure to wildlife and humans is a, a coordinated monitoring strategy that's run by government agencies across the entire region. I want to come back to that because I have some questions about that. But first, let's let's get to the high level results. Uh, I, I got you distracted. All my fault, as usual. Um, but so you did this and, and you, you, you found every study you could find. And, and you contact people who got data. And so what largely did you find in terms of, uh, you know, microplastics in the Great Lakes and the different levels of threat or threat, threat, different thresholds of risk? Maybe that's the right, whatever term you would like. What did you find? So in the first paper, which focuses on monitoring, what we, the big takeaway is that data spanning the last 10 years shows that the Great Lakes are widely polluted with microplastics in water, sediment, and wildlife. Um, in the second level, in the second paper, when we compared the concentrations we summarized in the first paper, we saw that um, about 90% of water samples that were collected in the Great Lakes surpassed safe levels for aquatic wildlife. And that 90%, that signifies low risk. Remember, we talked about the thresholds that range from low risk to high risk. So that's that first threshold. If we look at that fourth threshold, it's about 20% of water samples. So still, you know, that's almost a quarter of all water samples collected over the past 10 years show a concentration that is above some safe limit. So 90% are, are at least this lowest concern, which you say the policy response that y'all call for there is to increase the monitoring frequency, right? But one out of yes. five, one out of five 20% are, are at this highest level of concern and you have a policy response there that there should be regulated source reduction and that's a, a recommendation that you have. But that's something else. So regardless of the policy response, which I think can be a debate, right? The, the, what's not a debate is one out of five are at such a high level that they're, they're um, well, what is, what is the highest concern? What, is, what are like the results at that, I guess, at the different tiers? Is that something that you can talk about with this framework or, or not? So the, that highest threshold, so the fourth threshold, is a concentration at which you would expect 10% of species in the community to be impacted. So the lower threshold is 5% of species in the, in the community. And that higher, that higher threshold, that also only uses toxicity endpoints at the organismal and population level. Those, that lower threshold includes endpoints across all bi uh, levels of biological organization. Okay. What's, what's the endpoint here? I'm sorry. Help me, help me with endpoint. Yeah. So it might be something someone looks for in a toxicity study. I am not an ecotoxicologist and I won't Nor pretend to be, but a lot, of, a lot of my colleagues are. And so you can just look for different endpoints that signify toxicity at all levels of biological organization. Got it. Okay. So then you found that one out of five has this highest level of concern, almost or nine out of 10 um, at least, uh, or at the, the, meet the lower level, the lowest level of concern. Um, well, or across the first threshold, I suppose. And so then you turn this into some policy recommendations. Now, were those policy recommendations things that you came up with, or were those part of the, the framework as designed um, during the, that process? I almost said the California experts again, but I'm like, it's such a stupid term. All right. Um, but yeah. They, so that was part of the expert working group okay. design. So they built this risk assessment framework and tied it to a management framework. So they included those recommendation, recommended actions according to the each threshold. Okay. And so then you took that and, and applied it within the Great Lakes. And so 
in this paper, you argue that this should be part of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, which is that big binational agreement. In fact, oh, let me plug ourselves. If you want to hear more about the Water Quality Agreement, we interviewed Chris Korleski, the director of uh, EPA Glencoe, back at teaching about the Great Lakes um, 71, I think. It was December of 2022. So we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Why is the Water Quality Agreement the right way to address this in your, your mind? There is a annex in the Water Quality Agreement, Annex 3, that is set up to deal with what the agreement calls chemicals of mutual concern, or CMCs. Um, There are eight existing CMCs, and microplastics fits right in there, right? It's a chemical contaminant, just like other chemical contaminants. So it's kind of the perfect home for microplastics within the agreement. So that's one place that we suggest microplastics may fit well into the agreement, is under Annex 3, Chemicals of Mutual Concern. The second place that we see microplastics fitting in has to do with monitoring, actually. So it is the State of the Great Lakes reporting, which is a a report that's released every three years that uses a set of indicators to assess the health of the Great Lakes. And there is a toxic chemical sub-indicator, which includes a lot of the same chemicals that are designated as chemicals of mutual concern. And we think that's another potential home for microplastics being used as a sub-indicator under the toxic chemicals indicator. Um, and both the inclusion, either as a toxic chemical sub-indicator or a chemical of mutual concern, would necessitate that the government comes up with a monitoring strategy for microplastics in the Great Lakes. And have you spoken with people, uh, either in Environment, Environment and Climate Change Canada, the EPA, or you know, relevant agencies of states in the states about this? What has the reception been, or is it just uh, are you in the first stages of that process? Interestingly, anybody can actually nominate uh, a contaminant to become a chemical of mutual concern. Uh, A citizen can, groups can, anybody. So we are actually in the process of nominating microplastics to be a chemical of mutual concern. So there's instructions that the the U.S. and Canada give on how to do it and how to create a nomination package and what information they want. So we are actually in the final stages of putting together a nomination package. I think right now it's 30 pages in length. And we are going to send that off to um, the right people who are in charge of getting that in front of, I think it's representatives from EPA and ECCC who will then make their own assessment to see whether they agree and, and make a recommendation on, on whether or not microplastics should be included as a chemical of mutual concern. So TBD on what they say in relation to our package, but we have put together a package to actually do a formal um, submission. Interesting. I wonder what extent that's a scientific process and to what extent that's a, I mean, it's got to be at least partially a political process. Yes, because I think the um, the scientific groups make a recommendation and then that goes up to a political actor and then they decide. Well, Eden, this is really interesting to hear you come on and talk about, I mean, microplastics, which are obviously an important thing to talk about. And this, this application of a risk assessment framework into policy and a way that they all overlap and in, in the kind of the condition of the Great Lakes. But that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask you two questions. The first of which is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? So I have a question in response. Okay. Why donuts and sandwiches? Um, because that is how I wrote the question three years ago. Because uh, <laughs> it's a hard choice, right? Actually, for most people, it's a very easy choice. And it definitely leans one way or another. 
but it's interesting when it doesn't. So uh, that's why I don't understand. So, you know, yeah, there are lots of choices you could make, but these are the choices we're asking you to make. No, I love both donuts and sandwiches. Um, I think I lean towards sandwich and I'm a very classic deli sandwich person. Turkey, cheddar, a nice bun, tomato, lettuce, a pickle, mustard. I've loved that my entire life and I think I, I will keep loving it. Fantastic. So you are in uh, Toronto and I am going to come to Toronto one day and I'm going to go to Queen Mother. That's where I'm going to go first. And I'm going to get the pingai and I'm going to say, dang, this is good. Best food I've had outside of New Orleans. Okay. But then I, I can only eat that for six or eight days in a row uh, because of budget. And so on the seventh day, I'm going to want to go to lunch and get a nice deli sandwich. Where should I go in Toronto uh, near the university if you want or wherever to get a, a delicious deli sandwich? So I don't know if I have an answer in Toronto. I'm actually currently in Kingston, Ontario, where Kingston. I grew up. Okay, that's fine. I'm going to Kingston then. Yes. Okay, so I have an answer for Kingston, Ontario. It's called the Golden Rooster. It's on Princess Street, which are, is our main street downtown. And they make a wonderful deli sandwich, a very a classic Kingston deli sandwich um, that has been good for as long as I can remember and will continue to be good forever continue to be good just for as long as it could be. And the second question is this, um, you know, one thing we like to do with this show is we think about the Great Lakes as a uh, sort of a, a resource, a ecological, environmental, and cultural resource to be treasured. And we like to share that with our, our audience. And one of the ways that we do it is by talking about special places. And so is there a special place in the Great Lakes to you that you'd like to share and, and what makes it so special? It has to be Kingston. So Kingston, I said where I grew up, Kingston sits like at the eastern end of Lake Ontario, right almost where it meets the St. Lawrence. So I spent a lot of time growing up on the water, lots of swimming in the lake and also in the river, traveling around the Thousand Islands, which is not technically the Great Lakes, but the Thousand Islands in the St. Lawrence River are amazing. Um, so that's definitely the most special place for me in the Great Lakes. But I have not seen all the Great Lakes, and that is on my bucket list to do a road trip around all the Great Lakes. One day I will, and I will swim in each of them. You could, oh, do you dive? You should do a, a big five dive. I'm not, no, I don't think I'm that adventurous. I, I'll swim on the surface. And it sounds not fun, I'll be honest. Like the big five dive, you get up at the crack of the crack of dawn, and you go and you like dip yourself in each lake with your little snorkel or um, uh, scuba stuff. But then you got to get up and go because you got to get to all five in one day. And so, oh, I have yeah. never even heard of that. Oh, yeah, big five dive. Um, I hadn't either okay. until we talked to someone about it, but still, that is cool. Yeah, no, but a toe dip, just do a toe dip in each yeah. of the, yeah, yeah. That's a well, much... I, could, I would try and do that. I would be game for that. Okay, a lot of diving, but I would do it. Yeah, got to do a big five dive. All right, add that to your list. Edna Hatley, a PhD student in the Rockman Lab at the University of Toronto, uh, congrats on this paper. This is interesting stuff. And um, good luck with the policy side of it, with the difference that you're trying to make. But thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thank you for having me. Well, that was an interesting interview and it's always good to talk microplastics because it's so i mean so critical we need to get out of this though because right now we do uh pfos and microplastics and that's just a whole lot um that can be depressing uh, or at least a little bit upsetting but uh, we've got some really fun stuff coming up ahead so keep listening we've got we're at the time of year we're pretty much the rest of the year is almost set 
because we know we have a live show coming up. We have an interview coming up with John Hartig, who's written a really neat book, a not depressing book about um, sort of uh, Great Lakes heroes or leaders uh, that we'll have information on. Halloween special coming up soon. And then before we know it, it'll be time for the Lakeys. So really the rest of this year is uh, almost planned out and it's going to be a good one. This is our favorite time of year we're coming into once the semester starts. So keep tuning in. And if you haven't subscribed, go ahead and subscribe. Um, please make sure you do that. And on top of that, it's been a minute since I've asked for a rating or review. We haven't got a new rating in a while. Could you give us a rating, a five-star one to be very specific? It'd be nice to give it a new rating or maybe a new review. Just go click that button your pod thing, hit the five. Uh, I don't think it actually makes any difference, um, but it's fun to see them come in every now and again. I think it'd be lonely out here in Podland. So if you give us a rating, that would be sweet. Thank you. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant. And we encourage you to check out the cool stuff we do at iicgrant.org, at I-L-I-N-C-Grant on Facebook, Twitter, X, I guess. It still sounds stupid, people. I'm not going to lie. On Facebook, X, and other social media. Our senior producer is Carolyn Foley, and our producers are Hope Charters, Megan Gunn, and Rini Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and our fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork. Look at it right now. It's by Joel Davenport, JD. And the show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose. We thank her for everything. If you have a question about the show, please send us an email at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave us a message on our hotline, 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show on Twitter or X at uh, Teach Great Lakes, but as with microplastics in the Great Lakes, it might be time to rethink their management strategy. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And of course, keep grading those lakes.